This is the Beautiful Writers Podcast. I'm Danielle Laporte, and I'm here with Linda Sievertson, where we are chatting with some of the most amazing authors, publishing leaders, and creatives. Between the two of us, Linda and I have written something like 12 books, including our co-creation, Your Big Beautiful Book Plan. And we're here because we love this game. We love everything about the publishing industry, about getting ideas out into the world and being as creative as you possibly can. This all started with us interviewing some of our favorite agents and fellow authors for a membership group that we have called the Beautiful Writers Group. And because we don't believe friends should let their friends write alone, we are sharing the interviews with you. So for the next 45 minutes, because 45 minutes is a new hour, we will be digging deep and going for the light. Welcome. Hello, this is Linda Sievertson and Danielle Laporte, and we are so excited to bring you one of our literary heroes, Stephen Pressfield, a Duke University grad who wrote for 17 years before getting his first paycheck as a writer. Stephen is a bestseller of many books, both nonfiction and fiction, including The Legend of Bagger Vance, which became a movie starring Will Smith, Matt Damon, and Charlize Theron, and my current Bible, the War of Art, and Doing the Work. Stephen is a military man, considered the best military writer alive, and the world's foremost expert on the Spartans. He believes in past lives and the muse, and his writing philosophy is a kind of warrior code, internal rather than external, in which the enemy is self-sabotage or resistance. And that is a topic that resonates with millions of creatives who strive every day to overcome their inherent drive to annihilate their own forward momentum. We are so happy to have you here, Steve. I'm giddy. Well, th- thank you, Linda. Thanks, Danielle. It's really interesting to hear a sort of bio of you, of yourself. You know? <laughs> I don't know if I would have written it in that way, but it's interesting to hear. Okay. Fire away. <laughs> Great to be here with and you all guys. True. We start every call with a blessing. So everybody, everybody, doesn't matter where you are, universally it's good to breathe. So everybody just like take a breath. And here we go. We're here now to give witness to a shared truth that absolutely everything is progress, that we have all that we need, and that brilliance is unfolding here and now. And so it is. And Linda, Mm. kick us off. All right. Let's tackle the hard stuff first. People always ask me, Stephen, where they should start in their story, where they should start writing. And I always say go where the juice is. But that can greatly confuse writers who have been trained to write chronologically. So I know that you prefer to get the hardest parts out of the way first. But once you have a one-page outline, is that right? Yes. I'm a big believer. You know, I have this thing I know you know about called the fool's cap method. Fool's cap meaning a single sheet of yellow legal pad. And one of my great mentors, Norm Stahl, once taught me, he said, Steve, God made a single sheet of fool's cap to be exactly the right length to hold the entire outline of a novel. That was like a great breakthrough for me, that concept. Because if you can put something down on one page, it eliminates all the preciousness and all the research and all the resistance, you know, all the avoidance that comes up. And it also Mm. makes you answer the question, how does this damn thing end? 
right? <laughs> so many of us will start at the beginning and we don't know where the hell we're going, right? So doing it all on one page. So that's how I start. And then I usually work backwards from the end once I know what the end of the story is. In mm-hmm. other words, not working backwards writing that way, but in terms of structuring it. You know, if you have mm-hmm. the climax when the Terminator comes after, you know, uh, Sarah Connor, then you know you have to go backwards and lay in the beats that have to happen to lead up to that. I'm mm-hmm. not sure that's mm-hmm. answering your question, but that's kind of a, we're rambling here, right? <laughs> yeah, we're rambling. Um, you talk a lot about resistance. Do you ever, can you talk about grace, the opposite of resistance? Like, do you think it's essential that that resistance, that hitting the wall, you know, visiting the belly of the beast has to happen with every great creative project? Is it ever graceful completely, entirely? <laughs> Not for me. I've never, <laughs> I've never experienced it. The analogy that I use, Danielle, is that the creative impulse, like the idea for your novel or for whatever it is, is like a tree that sort of appears and then resistance is the shadow that immediately appears mm-hmm. of that tree. So that the resistance always comes second. There would be no resistance if you didn't have a great idea percolating in there. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the grace half of it. And to me, the writing process in a day, in a specific day, is like diving into a cold pool of water, right? The resistance is the, to diving into that water. But once you're in and you start swimming, then, if you're lucky, the grace appears and you're over that first initial resistance. So the two of them go hand in hand. I think they're equal and opposite in some crazy Newtonian way. Have you ever had that experience where there's so much resistance and there's a lot of turmoil that happens moving up to the project? Like. It's like your life is separate from the creative project itself. It's like, you know, the hardship of getting off the ground. You face your own fears. You get the funding. You walk away from the deal. You get to be, ah! And then the project itself is graceful? Not for me, no. <laughs> okay. I have to fight it. Just I have to fight it every day. Every rock for grace. Every day. And in fact, I find that every project, I think, is kind of like a hero's journey where yeah. you have the call and the refusal of the call and crossing the first threshold <laughs> and all of those things, right? And all the yeah. way through the hero's journey, as Joseph Campbell would describe it, you're constantly mm-hmm. battling enemies, right? Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. it's the same, the same way for me, at least with a creative project. And in fact, resistance, in my experience, is the strongest at the very end. Oh. When the finish line <laughs> is in sight, that's when mm-hmm. it gets the hardest of all. Oh, my God, I'm so glad you just said that. That is hilarious. Uh, Linda thinks that's hilarious because she's finishing her memoir right now. And it's you really got to gear up for that. I mean, if you think about the Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey, which is kind of the classic hero's journey, right? When Odysseus and the ships were right within sight of shore, they'd come back. They could see their homes. Yeah. They were coming back to Ithaca. Right, They could see the fires on the shoreline. They could see their families. They had captured they had this big bag of wind that they had on board the ship. And some of yeah. the uh, crewmen thought it was gold. They opened it up, and the wind blew them back as far away as they had been at the farthest point of their journey. So I think uh-huh. that's a real metaphor for resistance mm-hmm. being so strong right at the very, very end. So Wow, uh, I'm so grateful you said that because... I have really been experiencing this desire. I'm almost at the end. I'm just making, you know, the final tweaks. 
I've been talking with agents, I'm shopping for a new agent, and some of them have completely conflicting advice, right? Oh, I want it to be darker, I want it to be more abuse stuff. Others, I want it to be lighter, it needs to be, you know, less heavy. And I've just decided all I want to do is cook and clean (laughs) and lay out in the yard with the dogs. I mean, I have no interest. I have no interest in finishing it. I keep thinking, am I insane? Like, I've worked on this for years. It's not that hard what they're asking for. And, you know, all I have to do is decide which angle I want to go, and then I'll sign with that agent. But I can't decide, and I don't want to, and I just would rather shop. Like, what the hell? Well, you're you're not alone. I mean, that's resistance. That's completely resistance. It's insanity. For what this is worth to you, my first book a million years ago, I got 99.9% of the way through, and I blew up my marriage. I blew up my entire life. (laughs) Really, it took me years to recover. And looking back on it, I had no idea that there was such a thing as resistance in those days. That was entirely what it was, you know? That resistance is always the strongest at the finish line. (sighs) Okay, okay, so let's talk about that for a second. So you're at the wall, right? And you're looking at the project, whether it's a business, or a book, or a record, and you're thinking, well, something maybe is missing, right? That fatal flaw that you talk about in Do the Work. There's this fatal flaw. We've missed something somewhere along the line that was too difficult to face. We kind of ignored it. Now we're at the end. We've hit this wall. How do you know the difference, Stephen, between, my clients ask me this all the time, between rejection being God's protection and that there is some radical reworking that needs to happen. Could it just be that the right players haven't come yet? When you say rejection, do you mean like from agents and people like that? Yeah, like let's say you've put something out into the world for funding, and you've gotten, you know, no funding. But like, I, okay, I have a great example. A client of mine recently got rejected by 12 publishers. She was totally devastated, and I knew it was going to sell, and I knew it was going to be a movie. Then what happened was one of the editors that rejected it sent it to an editor at a different house, unbeknownst to her and unbeknownst to her agent. She ended up getting signed for a $350,000 deal, and the marketing department at Putnam is the same team that did the divergent marketing for the movie and said they see it as a movie and now they've got the movie options happening right now. And she was rejected by everybody. And I kept saying to her, maybe this rejection is God's protection. And in that case, there was no more work for her to do. There was no more like hitting the wall. She had finished. Hmm. Well, good for her. Uh, that's a great story. <laughs> let me put it this way. Let me let me go back for a second. What I was just yeah. talking about, about resistance being really hard at the end, is that's the stage before agents are even involved. That's when gotcha. it's just between you and the work itself. Gotcha. And after that, then you're into just the insanity of the commercial world, you know, where half the people mm-hmm. who reject it didn't even read it, Right. Or probably oh, yeah. 99% mm-hmm. of them didn't even read it. And yeah. and the other, you know, 99% are idiots, you know. Or maybe <laughs> it just is no good. You never know. But yeah. the books that I've sold have almost always, there's only been like one bidder. Everybody else rejects it. So I don't know. That's just my experience. But rejection seems to be the rule and not the exception mm-hmm. for most people I know. I don't know mm-hmm. if that helps or not, but... But congratulations. That's so helpful. That's a fantastic success story. Yeah. Uh, And basically what you're saying is everybody's insane. (laughs) 
But there's a few winners that come through. Um, well, one of so- the, the book that sort of got me going in the world was my second book called Gates of Fire. And uh, yeah. it was turned down by everybody except my now partner, Sean Coyne. He was like the only one that yeah. uh, at Doubleday at the time. So without him, wow. I'd be uh, making this speech to you from the front seat of a New York taxi cab, as <laughs> Alan Alda once said about his wife. <laughs> I, as of last week, walked away from my second book deal. It's not my second book deal. It's the second time I've walked away from a book deal. And as sort of a self-defense mechanism, because, of course, a lot of people are very pissed off with me right now, I said to my then agent, you know, deals go south all the time. This is part of it. And she said, no, it's actually very rare. At least it is in her case. <laughs> and, I, and I respect that. And I absolutely believe that's been the case for her. You know, and I was sharing that with my right-hand person. And she said, just, you know, the most important line of that is rare. Just let yourself be the rare one. And that was like a great reframe for me because, of course, I'm just like feeling like the crazy chick again. It's the second deal. I said, I just can't sign. And, uh-huh. <laughs> and you get like you labeled as the crazy lady with capital C, capital L, but I'm going for the rare. But your theory of like, well, the insanity of the commercial world is that helps me accept my rareness. Um, Do you have a prayer that infuses your creativity? Is there anything that you say or invoke before you sit to write or get down with your full scout? That's a great question, and the answer is yes, there is. And mm-hmm. um, I got this years ago from a, a friend of mine, like my first sort of mentor in the business, and uh, he used to say this prayer, and it's the opening prayer from the T.E. Lawrence translation of the Odyssey, and it's actually the words that uh, Homer used at the very start of the Odyssey. And it's his, Homer's, invocation of the muse, where he kind of says, mm-hmm. you know, sing, goddess of the wrath of Achilles, or actually, that's the, that, I'm wrong, that's the Iliad. But he talks about, help me to tell the story of Odysseus. So I do, I do say a prayer every morning. It's kind of like what you mm-hmm. did, Danielle, to start this show yeah. or this podcast, mm-hmm. where you kind of made it a sacred space by, mm-hmm. you know, it's sort of like entering a dojo of, uh, or, mm-hmm. right? And I think that it. I think that's great, and I believe in mm. it completely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And both so I always say that the muse is the only female in my life that I've always been faithful to, and the only one who has <laughs> always been faithful to me. <laughs> if you pay attention to her, she keeps coming around. And if you don't pay attention to her, she is pissed off. But I mean, like most women, yeah, it's, that's it's, true. It's, it's that's true. Yes. Yes. That actually brings up a really interesting question. Do you think that your muse, Stephen, is male or female? I mean, I think oh, of, of her always as female, but that's only mm. because of the, they're the nine sisters, the goddesses. <laughs> yeah, I can't even conceive of a male muse, but maybe there are. I don't know. Well, because you're that writing is Right, ahead, you're, but your writing is so, you write about such masculine topics, although you're very poetic. So I see you as equally having the male-female voice. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know what to say about that. I mean, if you think about the <laughs> Iliad, Homer invoking the muse, right? That in the Iliad or it was yeah. a very male-oriented thing. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. a good question. I'd have never thought about it before. I guess This is a great mm-hmm. segue because I was going to ask if you had a female foil who would that be like? What does the feminine creative voice of Pressfield sound like? Because 
you know, you've got the, it's that Victor language and that, oh, and I think, you know, every time I read your stuff, I'm like, huh, like, what is Chick Steven? What would she be saying? I did write one book called Last of the Amazons that's about the female warriors, where I wrote it in the voice of a woman. Mm. And that was kind of an interesting experience. Um, Were they cutting off their breasts so that they could be better with the bow and arrow? Yeah, exactly. The, or theoretically, yeah, they burned them off, you know, with a oh, uh, nice. <laughs> with like an iron, you know, like a hot iron. Mm-hmm. That was that's the legend, anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know the answer to that question. I'm going to mm-hmm. figure it out and get back to you. Uh, <laughs> let me know. <laughs> so, uh, speaking of legends, Stephen, when you brought through, I'm going to call it a bring through, the legend of Bagger Vance. This was a very mystical process, was it not? And also a side question is, did your agent really fire you over that project? Well, we butted heads and I walked away, you know. And I don't blame him because it was taking me away from my movie career that he'd worked really hard on. But that definitely was a book that kind of came through. It really was more than anything I've ever done. It just sort of uh, seized me and happened Mm. incredibly fast. I wrote the whole thing in about four months, and without a totally on instinct, with no concept of Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, anything like that. <laughs> but that was the, I'd been trying to do that for 30 years, failing constantly, and I mean, write a novel. But I also stole the structure of it from the Bhagavad Gita, the Hindu scripture, so that made it a little easier. But yeah, it was definitely an idea that kind of seized me, and I just don't even remember writing it. Now, when you say you stole it, were you currently reading the Bhagavad Gita, or had you read it a long time before? I'd, I'd, I mean, how, how... That's a great question. I, I've probably read it 15 times. It's just one of those things that, in different translations, uh, that yeah. I, somehow feeds me. So it was very yeah. clear in my mind what it was, you know. And uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. at some point, I just had the idea, geez, this is a great structure for a story, and let me just steal it and, and transpose it to another event. <laughs> And I'm a big believer in stealing. You know, I think it's great, you know? If you can steal a structure of, you know, Hamlet or Moby Dick or something, great. Makes things um, a lot easier, too. I don't mean really to steal in the sense of steal somebody else's stuff. But when there's something that's great out there, like the idea of Romeo and Juliet, the structure of Romeo and Juliet, or, mm-hmm. you know, there are other classic stories. You know, mm-hmm. uh, there are only so many plots, you know. And my, if it's yeah. a great one, might as well use it. They're timeless. Yeah. Use it as a model. And then do your own thing upon it. Okay. The first moment in your career as a writer where you thought to yourself, I've arrived. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> yeah. Did it, has it happened? <laughs> uh, I think it was after when Bagger Vance got published. Now, I'd been a screenwriter for about 10 years, so I'd been making a living as a writer, but it wasn't really till an actual book got published, I think, that I really felt like, wow, this is what I've been envisioning. You know, it finally happened. Did you envision this when you were a kid? No. I never wanted to be a writer as a kid. It never occurred to me. What happened was my first job in New York was in advertising. And yeah. I was, you know, like a copy cub, you know, in a group. <laughs> and uh, yeah. I had a boss named Ed Hannibal who quit and wrote a novel that was a hit. Whoa. And, you know, I was 22 years old or 23 years old or something. And I just thought, well, hell, I'll do that too. 
<laughs> and uh, so 30 years later, I finally did it. You know, but it never had occurred to me until then. You know, I saw him just leave, write this thing. It was a big success. I thought, wow, that's really cool. Let me do that too. Mm, Which is why they mm. say you got to be ignorant and arrogant if you right? as an entrepreneur. That was it. I was totally ignorant and arrogant. And by the way, totally oh, did. That was the book that ruined my marriage. Blah blah blah. It was a total fiasco. Couldn't have been. Well, worse. yeah, quitting your day job is never good for home and heart. No, this was a catastrophe. <laughs> <laughs> really, really. All right. Best mistake, career or otherwise. Best mistake. That's a great question. I think, well, let me go back to that first book I wrote. After my boss quit and I said, well, I'm going to quit too, and I wrote a book. (laughs) So I did that, and that was the one I got 99.9% of the way through, and then resistance completely nailed me, and I blew up my life, you know, acting out. That was probably the best mistake that ever happened to me in the sense that it put me on, you know, like a seven-year odyssey of struggling just to survive that... Mm -hmm. When you look back on those times, you think that's kind of where you you were formed in a way, you know. So at the time, it was terrible. But once I had kind of put it behind me and kind of got my feet on the ground again, I've sort of fed off that time like a carcass, you know, for the rest of my life. <laughs> you know the way you're bone, your bone broth. Like a hyena on a Serengeti plank. <laughs> Do you need encouragement? And if you do, who do you get it from? You know, that's another great question. And I think the answer is no. Um, Mm -hmm. I need some, but I failed for so long, for so many years, that I sort of came to the point where I became almost kind of self-contained in the sense that I could read my own stuff, and I still think I can read my own stuff and evaluate it just by myself, you know, which is not mm, to say mm-hmm. my partner, Sean, is not a tremendous help to me. But, you know, a lot of times, this is a really good question. I haven't thought about this at all. People will kind of come to me as a mentor and they'll ask mm-hmm. me to um, to encourage them, basically, you know. And I do encourage a lot of people. It's almost like my job is to encourage people. But I always sort of think that people are kind of weak to need encouragement. And mm-hmm. I don't like to see that in a young writer. I'd rather, mm-hmm. I think about somebody like Henry Miller. And I think, you know, did he ever look around for any kind of, you know, somebody to tell him what he was doing was right? I don't think so. So obviously we all need encouragement. But when you seek it too much, you're giving your power away to whoever that person yeah. is that you're asking for encouragement. You know, mm-hmm. like, uh, Linda, you were saying before that you got conflicting advice from different agents, right, about your yep. stuff. Yep, I mean, that'll yep. drive you out of your freaking mind, won't it? And that's... Yep. Uh, really. And somebody said something to me once that was really true, and it is that it's the rare, rare, rare person who can read anything and accurately tell you what's wrong with it. One in a hundred, mm-hmm. I would say. And then mm-hmm. beyond that... It's one in a hundred that can tell you how to fix it. So mm. it's to ask for encouragement. It would be different, I would say, if people really knew what they were talking about. And you could say, here, read my short <laughs> story, right? And they'd come back and say, well, you know, chapter two, whatever, you know. But yeah. you don't get that. You get a lot of lame advice. And this is one of the things I have really against writers, groups, 
even mm-hmm. though I know that uh, you know a lot of people use them and a lot of people get off on them, mm-hmm. is sometimes but you the blind leading the blind, you know, and you get more bad advice. Said, you know, but in Do the Work, you talk about where you had hit the wall with that novel that you thought was really cutting edge and really some of your best work ever. And you get, everybody hates it, right? You put it out there. I don't know if you're exaggerating, but everybody says they hated it. Yeah, true, they right. Gave you, they didn't give you expert feedback as to how to fix it or even really what was wrong with it, if I remember. But what they did give you was just the inkling of where to look and what to do. And you stewed on that, which allowed you to find the answer. Yes, there's a lot of truth to that. Yes. Yeah. Now, that's not exactly so encouragement. Th- that's just feedback, right? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and yeah. actually, that book was probably the least successful book I've ever done. So I probably should have scrapped the whole thing. It probably was just going in the wrong direction anyway. Mm-hmm. But back to encouragement for a second. I mean, we all need, I think, the good type of encouragement is encouragement that just says, keep going, believe in yourself, you know, don't listen to the negative stuff. That sort yeah. of encouragement, which is sort of, Generic encouragement, you know, be true to follow your star, be true to yourself, that kind of thing. But when a writer is sort of uh, not mentally tough and within themselves and looks to other people for it, then that's bad because it only increases your sort of need for third-party validation. So I would much rather see somebody dig deeper inside themselves and ask those questions of themselves. What do you really think? What do you really mm-hmm. think is wrong? And because I think that mm-hmm. makes you stronger. Love it. Love it. Okay, change of pace. Uh, favorite okay. literary hero, living or dead? Um, Henry Miller is one of my heroes. I have a lot of heroes, but he's one of them, mainly because he struggled for so long and because he was so true to his own star. And he was such an original. You know, there's nobody like Henry Miller. Maybe a few pale copies. And he's just, you know, to me, you can pick up any page. You don't even have to read the whole book. Just pick up a page. <laughs> and it's great. Yeah. And he really found his voice. So he's a big uh, literary hero to me. I also love uh, Walker Percy. And, yeah. um, you know, I'm a, a lot of my stuff is based on ancient Greeks. And so if you go back yeah. to any of those you know, just name any of them, Thucydides, Herodotus, Plato, Xenophon, any of them were so mm-hmm, great, mm-hmm. and they were so clear-minded that, uh, yeah. to me, like, reading their stuff is like taking a drink out of a mountain stream. You know, there's no mm. no neurosis in there, none of the modern yeah. poisonous stuff, you know? Yeah. The insanity of the commercial world. Uh, Everybody wants to know about your creative rhythm. So I know you've probably been asked this so many times, but like, what's a day of writing look like in Pressfield land? Um, Okay, that's a good question. I'm a little like Twyla Tharp. I get up really early. I go to the gym first thing and Mm -hmm. uh, come back home and kind of take care of the stuff that, you know, emails and stuff like that, of which I have very few. And then I work... Why? Wait, can we just pause that? Why do you have very (laughs) few emails? Because I've tried to eliminate as many friends as possible from my life. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm I'm joking, but I have have very consciously tried to simplify my life, you know? Mm -hmm. And as far as, like, social media and that kind of stuff, I really... 
Like if I'm going out to breakfast with some of the guys from the gym or whatever, everybody will have their iPhones out except me. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> I just awesome. refuse to do it. So I'll, anyway, so I'll get that out of the way. And then like a long day for me is four hours. And in fact, as I'm getting older, I can't, maybe I'm just, I can do more in less time, but I hardly will work mm. more than, you know, two and a half, three hours at the, at the most of, of real it. work, of real work. And then mm-hmm. when that's done, I'm also a big believer that the office is closed. I just turn off my brain completely and I mm. don't worry about anything that I'm working on. I just, if I've done enough for the day, I sort of consider that I paid my rent on the being here on the planet. <laughs> and and then I just, you know, let the rest of the day, you know, you know, enjoy myself or do whatever I'm going to hey, do. Stephen, do you read the work of other writers when you're writing? No, I actively don't. Or at least mm. I don't read fiction while I'm writing. And the reason is that I don't want somebody else's voice to get in my head. If you read a really strong voice, it can contaminate what you're working on, you know? Now, I yeah. will read yeah. lots of nonfiction, and I'll read, if I'm writing fiction, and I'll also read, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, I read newspapers and magazines, and, you know, I read a lot, but I won't mm-hmm. read other fiction, unless it's something like, you know, uh, Tolstoy or something, or somebody from the deep past that is not going to uh, influence me. Yeah. In other words, a classic something. But mm-hmm. oddly enough, as a writer, I confess to you, I'm not much of a reader. I mean, I read the New York Times and I read, you know, lots of stuff like that. But, you know, if you were to give me a pop quiz on contemporary fiction writers, you know, I would mm-hmm. fail it hands down. <laughs> You're making me feel so normal. I'm loving it. Okay, this is the point of the program where uh, we do a multiple choice intermission. So here we go. Leonard Cohen or Rumi, your choice. Ah, wow, that's a great choice, huh? Uh, mm-hmm. I'll pick Rumi, but they're both great. Mm. Beach or mountains? Beach. I live digital. At the beach. You live at the beach. Okay, digital or paper in terms of your calendar system? Uh, paper for sure. Sex or golf? Uh, what was the, what was the first one? <laughs> sex? Did you say? Yeah, sex or golf? Oh, I've got to pick, pick golf. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. You can have. No, a I, you say here's one thing I always say about that <laughs> on the subject. I said I've had girlfriends that I was with for six months, and I can't remember their names, but I can remember a five iron that I hit when I was 14 oh, no. years old. Oh, <laughs> we're gonna golf is a lot harder I'm, than sex. You got to be a lot better. <laughs> I'm gonna give you then you're dating the wrong. Okay, I'm going to let you redeem yourself with some By the way, I've questions. given up golf. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Linda snuck this one in. I don't, Spartans or Athenians? Uh, wow, that's another great question. I don't think you asked anybody else that. <laughs> I think <laughs> no, never. I'll pick them both because they're both, it's a really deep question. You could write five books on mm-hmm. it. Right? Right. Opposite sides of the human way of looking at things, so, but I'll pick them both. They're both great. Okay, this is a final question, and I will tell you, this is a trick question. Beatles or the Rolling Stones? Rolling Stones. Oh, Rolling Stones. Well, see, see the, the real answer is Led Zeppelin, but I'm going to give that. <laughs> <laughs> Back to something we were talking about earlier about stealing. 
I've kind of been into the Rolling Stones a little bit lately because of a book I'm working on. And I've, mm-hmm. you know, listened to some of their early albums and really gone over a lot of the early stuff. And if you listen to their first albums are a lot of covers of, you know, just Chicago blues and stuff like that. And when they finally got into their first early songs that kind of broke through, they were basically just stealing. You know, they just stole mm-hmm. and made a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And then they took it another level and another level. So. I thought their 50-year tour a couple of years ago was the best thing I'd ever seen in my life. Ah. All right, so I want to talk a little bit about the business of writing. You know, you co-founded your publishing company, which you called the Black Irish Books, where many of your titles now come from. And I love how you say that unlike the fair-haired, light-eyed Irishman, this is the dark-haired, dark-eyed, unstable, even dangerous, you know, pugnacious (laughs) uh, Right. That's my partner, Sean Coyne. He's black Irish. I love that. I love that. Now, how has this helped you in the industry and why do it? Why become a publisher? That's another great question. I mean, we are not really publishers in the sense of publishing other people's stuff. We've published like about five books by people, not ourselves, and only yeah. one of them made money. And we decided not to do that anymore, mainly because writers are such a pain in the ass. You know, they always want encouragement, you know. <laughs> and uh, the whole thing just started because uh, Sean said to me one day, the our contract for the War of Art that was being published by Grand Central at the time expired. And we had the option to publish it ourselves. So mm-hmm. we just sort of said, let's do it. So we started out just publishing one book, that one book. And that was when print-on-demand came in at Amazon. It was like mm-hmm. maybe four or five years ago. Otherwise, it wasn't really practical before that. And when e-books really started to take off so that now, as you guys well know, it's practical to publish your own stuff, whereas it wasn't before. Mm-hmm. But still, it only works for us with the books that are sort of like The War of Art, that are kind of about writing. Like my most recent book was called The Lion's Gate, and it was about the Six-Day War, the Arab-Israeli War of 1967. And it was much too big for black Irish. There was no way we could bring that out because we can't get Mm -hmm. books into bookstores. It's only Mm -hmm. online for us. So Sean acted as my agent, and we made a deal with Penguin Sentinel. So a big book or a serious book or like even a serious fiction book I'm not so sure that self-publishing or a small publishing company really works for that. I'm not sure. I think it needs a bigger umbrella and it needs the validation that comes from a big five publisher. But for the sort of small niche that we're in, it it works great to have a little publishing company because you know your book is going to come out one way or another. (laughs) And it's going to come out on your time. All those conflicting uh, responses to it, you know? Yeah, yeah. I'm spoiled. You know, if somebody gave me extensive notes on a book, I'd walk away in a minute. <laughs> yeah, it's so great to have authority. You're too old to not have authority issues. You know? Yeah. One of your tenets is we must accept that our work will never be perfect. Now, Linda and I have a different sort of anthem for our past work. Linda looks at her body work and says, I think it's good. I feel great. I wouldn't change a thing. And that is healthy, and that fuels your next project. Me, I'm like, fuck, I burn everything I ever wrote before 12 o'clock today and do it, you know. <laughs> and that is my version of healthy, and that helps me write the next thing. Where Are you like burn or keep? I just sort of, it's another great question. I just kind of ask myself, have I done the best I could at the time? Yeah. And if yep. I have, 
then I try not to look back and worry about it. And don't worry about it. Yep. Amen. Because you're going to evolve and you're going to move on to the next one. And I'm trying myself to sort of conserve energy, not worry about the past, keep moving forward. Mm-hmm. 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 I got a question about book proposals. Have you written them in the past? And what is your best advice for anybody who wants to sell a book and is looking at having to write a proposal for agents and editors? Wow, that's another great question. I've only done one proposal in my whole life. That was for the Lionsgate just like a few years ago. And mm. Sean, my partner, kind of guided me through it because he's done a million of them. The best advice, I think, is to be yourself in the writing. Like, uh, this is a Jewish-themed book, The Lionsgate. So I had one line in it there about something about, and I'm circumcised. And I think that that <laughs> made a, I think that helped, you know? Um, to, to just <laughs> just be yourself and not take it too seriously, you know? Like, you have to prove all the market for it is this and that and the other. Mm-hmm. Do you have any more specific question on that subject? Or maybe I could answer that. You know, I don't really. I think that what Danielle and I are seeing is a big difference between people who became famous with their work before social media and people who are in the midst of, you know, making their name in the days of social media. And what we're finding, and this is just, you know, our opinion, but what we're seeing is that the really established authors who have been established for a long time, like yourself, like Mary Carr, when we speak to you, there's not an urgency or a stress about having to tap into this whole social media craze, whereas what Danielle and I are seeing on our end is that people who have not become famous already are still having to really worry about that. And so what they focus on in their proposals is very different than established names like yourself or Mary Carr or other authors who are already well-known and well-loved. Well, we should underscore what still having to worry about it means, which is my experience with publishers these days, you know, I could talk to a half dozen of them and they would say, listen, unless somebody's got 50,000 people on Facebook and on Instagram, Twitter, et cetera, we're not even going to look at it. You know, 50% uh, of the proposal is about how robust social media and marketing. Uh, Here's a big question. Do you have a platform? And we, we posed that question to Mary Carr. Mary Carr, she was like, what do you mean by platform? Like, oh, <laughs> that's the difference. Yeah. You have one now. You don't even, and this is like, you know, the new... The new lexicon, the new reality is platform or no deal. Yeah. Mm, And I I know there is some talent that rises to the top, of course, of course, of course. But it's still, I mean, I would say the through line in this conversation with you, Stephen, really is we just keep coming up to that rarity, right? So it's like there is the rare diamond that is going to be discovered by the rare agent who has the sensibility and the eye and can read the book and see that it's a diamond. And then there will be the rare circumstance where there will be grace and yeah. it will make its way through. But is that my, it's not what I'm seeing. I'm seeing that we're really turning into this. And I have a problem with this. We're really turning into this. Well, we've probably already been, always been this way, but it's so outside in now instead of inside yeah. out. And wow. now you're getting I'm me a, depressed. <laughs> it's fucking depressing. And you know, I as a writer now, I'm in a privileged place. My privilege is my platform. It's a privilege yeah. that I work for. It's not a silver spoon platform. There's no such thing. That's beautiful, unless Kim Kardashian retweets your stuff. Um, <laughs> but I have the privilege of a stage that I built now, and so I can walk away from book deals. 
I can even be in a place where, yeah, I need encouragement, but not really. I'm going to write what I want to write, and I'm mm-hmm. going to get it out mm-hmm. there. It's going to sell. Now, you know, and then I'm going to be the judge, and there'll, there'll be the yeah. reciprocal judgment of whether it's quality or not. But it's different. People are just like, we hear so much stress in creative now about the platform, and it's heartbreaking because I'd really like to say to everybody, just write the best book you can write. But yeah, that would be irresponsible of me to say. Yeah, yeah. And we well, do also. I'd like I'm going to gonna kill myself after this. Year. I know, no, I, 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 <laughs> you're good. I want to add something to that because we are talking to so many of these creatives, and me especially, because I work hands on with a lot of writers. And one of the things that is a bright spot in this conversation is that the social media and having to make so many connections out there to prove to a publisher that you're going to be a viable partner and not just six expect them to do all the work is that it's still really about relationships and there are so many ways whether it's blogging or guest blogging or connecting with authors live and then supporting each other there are so many ways to get a platform that's independent of just your numbers like for instance I just wrote a proposal and in my proposal I don't have 50,000 followers on Facebook that's never been a priority for me But what I do have is I have relationships. And so I listed relationships with people who would be willing to blast their social media and their newsletters. And it was such a beautiful process because I realized I really had a lot of connections I hadn't considered. And people rallied and said, oh, yes, put me in your proposal. And the agents that I've been talking to said, wow, I don't see a lot of what you just did. And that really impressed me. And that shows because agents are weary of social media too. They hate having to say to people, look, you've got to get your numbers up before I can sell this story that I love. So one of the things Danielle and I work on is trying to find the ways in which we can support and encourage our people about ways that they don't have to go kill themselves. (laughs) Hello, everybody. Just like at the top of this call, we decided to take a universal breath together. One brief commercial break to tell you that Linda and I have your big, beautiful book plan. It is all about how to write a book proposal that gets you a deal. Linda, take it away. Attention all writers. Book proposals are to books as business plans are to businesses. Essential. A proposal that is masterfully crafted will help make you a visionary writer, a stronger business person, and just may change your life. We've created a step-by-step Mac Daddy map to walk you through every phase of writing your book proposal with dozens of examples that have taken many first-time writers from ideas to done to sold. Go to your big, beautiful book plan and script your success. Welcome back. This is Linda Sievertson and Danielle Laporte and I are talking with literary warrior Stephen Pressfield. Okay, so off track a little bit, but I think we're getting towards the close here. Your muse. I want to ask you about what's a way in which you can tell our listeners to be able to woo their muse? Because you have said not believing in the muse is death. So how do we believe in it? How do we connect with it and woo it? I think that a writer or any artist serves the muse. And that's why you can't command the muse, but you can only invoke her. And mm-hmm. I sort of feel, mm-hmm. I mean, you know what kite surfing is? Where sure. you have sort of mm-hmm. like a parasail above you and you mm-hmm. surf along the water with lines going up to this parachute above you. I feel like we as writers, we're on the surfboard. 
down on the surface mm-hmm. of the water. But there are lines extending above us, and the power is coming from that. That's where, you know, is when the wind hits that sail, hits that kite, it pulls us. So I believe, let's go back to what you guys were just talking about, about social media. If you look at it from the inside out of the writer's career, or a singer's career, or an actor's career, or a, you know, a songwriter's career, you're going to have a body of work. You know, one album is going to follow another, follow another, follow another. And I think that those are muse-driven projects. And when you, yeah. when you finish one, for me, I sort of ask partly what do I want to do next, but also what do you, the muse, want me to do next? And I think that we're, I believe we have a destiny. When I think we're born with a destiny. And there are sort of our works that we were put on this earth to write or to produce, or to create. So that's my attitude. And I think that if the muse is flying overhead looking down and sees somebody with that attitude, she's very happy. Because that's, <laughs> that's what she wants, right? That's awesome. You know, is this person a true servant of mine? And the question, this is the muse talking. And I think the other way you kind of court the muse is by being willing to do whatever it takes to do your work, you know? Not be distracted by other stuff. Keep going. All that stuff. All that mental toughness stuff that yeah. makes you yeah. a good soldier for the muse. And Love I think it. that you can't fake it and you have to believe it, you know. And for me, I went through, early in my career, I went through a really rough time where I think I sort of came out of it by saying to the muse, okay, all right, I'll follow you. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. <laughs> And I think that was a, uh, it really sustains you, I think. Mm-hmm. Love it. Right? You, you don't have 50,000 followers. <laughs> I still believe that if somebody writes something great, it'll find a home. Yep. It'll, it'll be yep. recognized. Because mm-hmm. yep. so much stuff is so mediocre that when there's something great, Agreed. you can see it. Agreed. Agreed. That's probably a great note to finish on, unless you... It is. <laughs> Stephen Pestfield, you are clear water from a mountain stream. This was so nourishing. Oh, nice. We are so grateful. And I also, side note of gratitude, I want to thank you for the lunchbox you sent me with your book. And I don't think it sold any Ditto. books for you because my kid stole it and put his Lego in it. And um, <laughs> when I finally meet you in person, I would like to argue with you over destiny. And uh, we're very grateful. I say Thank we, you. I say we take him to lunch next time you're in town. We'll take him okay. out to the water. Okay, and I, let me say to you guys, I almost never do interviews. Never. I do like I three a year. And I'm not even sure why you're... I wanted to do it with you guys, but I'm really <laughs> glad I did. It's really been a lot of fun, and I think it'll be helpful to the people who are listening. You know, I, I hope so. Absolutely, absolutely. So God bless you. you. God bless you. All right, much, much love, Stephen. Thank you. Okay, thanks. The same back to you, and we'll have lunch. Yeah. All right, okay. can't ciao. Bye bye. Bye bye. Everybody, you can find Stephen Pressfield not on Instagram, <laughs> not on Pinterest, <laughs> but his website is Stephen, that's Stephen with a V, Pressfield.com, and on Twitter, he is S. Pressfield. You can find us 
pretty much everywhere. Danielle Laporte, Linda Severson, your big, beautiful book plan, Book Mama. And rumor has it that it really works if you head over to iTunes and leave awesome reviews for this whole series. As we mentioned in this interview with Stephen, we really started this on a whim and it took off like wildfire. And now we serve it and it is our great delight. And thank you for being here. We send you four stars of gratitude. To hear more of our chats and find out how we can support you on your writing journey, head over to beautifulwriterspodcast.com, where you can subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud and never miss an episode. Danielle and I are so grateful you've spent your time with us. Until next time, write on. Write on.